Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we're going to be chatting with Raven Hickson. And Raven, she's got all kinds of things that we want to talk to her about. She's a behavioral neuroscientist who's just finishing up her PhD, and she's been studying social play behavior in a rat model of neurodevelopment disorder, which may not sound like it has anything to do with horses, but I'm sure that it does, especially since it involves play behavior, which I think is a really important area to explore. She comes from an applied animal background, so one of the things that Raven has said to me is that the transition from the applied world into the laboratory has been an interesting one. So that's definitely something that would be worth exploring. And her bachelor's degree is in animal science from Cornell. Her focus was on neurobiology and behavior and the psychology courses. And then she interned over two summers as a zookeeper at the Cleveland Zoo. And that's got to have been a really interesting experience. And that's where she learned about husbandry training and the idea of species-appropriate enrichment. She was involved with horses when she was at Cornell. She worked at the Equine Research Park. And that connection, that juxtaposition, got her thinking about applying the concepts that she was learning about at the zoo to managing horses and other domestic animals. And after graduating, she spent time working in zoos and as a high school animal science teacher. That has to have been a fascinating experience managing a whole room full of learners, never mind just the one or two equine learners that we work with. And then she worked as a manager of a small boarding barn before she moved to Scotland in 2017 for a master's in applied animal behavior and animal welfare at the University of Edinburgh. And her master's dissertation has led directly to her PhD project, which has focused on social play behavior in rat models of neurodevelopment disorder. And she is paying particular attention to how that can be used to refine methods to improve welfare. Raven has two Icelandics who live at home with her, and she's attended both in-person clinics with me, and now she's also attending the online clinics. So that's another area that would be interesting to explore, the comparison between those two types of clinics. And since she's had the horses at home, she's also learning about pasture management, which is another area that I'm interested in. So there's a tremendous amount to talk about and to unpack. It's quite a bio. I have yes. to say, yeah, yes. it's really, really interesting. <laughs> yes, you, Raven, you've given us a lot to talk about. So, so let me throw it out to, um, first of all, to say hello to you and welcome. Hi, thank you. And then to throw it out to both you and, and Dominique, because I usually get the ball rolling in terms of, so let's start here. But there's so much that's fun there. So Dominique, do you have any 
place you'd particularly like to start? Well, first of all, because you identified yourself as a behavioral neuroscientist. So what's that? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a really good question. I actually am really having a hard time identifying myself as anything at this point in my career because, yeah, I don't know, the process of writing my thesis has just basically brought up way more questions than answers. So <laughs> I don't really feel like I can qualified to be called that. But um, a behavioral neuroscientist basically is interested in looking at the underlying neural mechanisms that drive sort of outward behavior. So that can lead to a lot of different kinds of approaches in studying that, but that's basically the idea. And I would specify behavioral because I don't do any sort of electrophysiology or genetic sort of work. So although I work in models of, of neurodevelopment disorder, so they've been genetically modified, I don't that's not my area of specialty. So I'm applying my behavior uh, knowledge, I suppose, to the problem of identifying how genes are affecting behavior, I guess you could say. But genetics isn't really my background specialty. Okay. <laughs> so, I, so I think to understand better what you're doing you need to tell us what you're doing yeah so <laughs> I will tell you what I'm what what I have done I suppose okay so my my master's dissertation project um, was actually looking at tickle responses in a rat model of fragile x syndrome uh, with, so when sorry with you, what syndrome a fragile x syndrome which means um, so fragile x is, is a developmental disorder that is X-linked, so it's it's caused by a single gene mutation, and because it's linked to the X chromosome, you mainly find it in males because they only inherit one X chromosome, so it's just more likely that they'll have a mutation. And since females get two copies, you can also have a less severe sort of manifestation because it's it's a kind of diluted because you can have one normal copy. Okay. So it's associated with autistic-like uh, features in social uh, interactions and communication, which is specifically what we were trying to look for um, using Tickle. So the problem is when we generate a rodent model of a human disorder, although now we have the technology to directly mutate the, the single genes, identified it, that this disorder is linked to a single gene, and now we can detect the gene in a rodent, and we can then look for, basically, the, the whole idea is to develop therapeutics for humans. But we first need to identify what, how do we know if a therapeutic is working oh, okay. in a rodent model, because it, this is what we need for kind of clinical testing, preclinical testing, sorry, of any kind of drug target, basically, or any kind of therapy. So you have to identify a phenotype. So what the animal expresses outwardly and link that to the genotype. And then we can then say, oh, look, when we use this, this therapy, this drug, we ameliorate this phenotype in this. And that's how that's sort of one of the links in the chain of getting to sort of a clinical stage. So that's kind of the aim is, is that's, we're sort of at the beginning stages of this with rats. So mice for a long time were 
were used as rodent models because their genome was sequenced first and they were they were able to mutate that. But now we're able to use CRISPR to mutate any gene of any animal, basically. And I, I'm sorry, but don't ask me what CRISPR really does because I, <laughs> I won't be able to answer that. Right, um, but I, I, I don't know about people listening, but I'm, I'm familiar with not the how it works, but the concept of CRISPR in terms of being able to change genes. So, so we'll mm-hmm. just take it as a given that we all have a, the familiarity that comes from having read a newspaper or listened to the news. Yeah. yeah. So, so the problem, though, then is what might this look like in a rat <laughs> or a mouse? You know, because we know what it looks like in humans, but it's much harder to see if these sort of phenotypes are there in rodents. And we don't necessarily need there to be a phenotype that recapitulates the phenotypes in humans, but we need a a robust phenotype that we can apply a therapeutic and say, ah, now it's it's better. It's done something. Yeah, it's done something. So that is where I sort of came into this picture. I was never looking to get into this field. (laughs) It just sort of happened upon me. And I like tickling as an assay because, (laughs) I mean, how could you not like that? (laughs) I mean, it's much, it seems much kinder than a lot of the other ways that we ask animals, you know, about their experiences. So, and it was, it was quite fun, I have to say. So, so when other people are going in to do their lab work and they're sticking electrodes into animals and doing other grim things, you're going in and just tickling rats. Yes. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> so that was kind of a nice aspect. And so you can record their vocalizations. They make ultrasonic vocalizations yeah. when you tickle them. And rat vocalizations have been, yeah, have been categorized pretty well um, so they're so they make broadly two distinct types of vocalization. So one in a fifty kilohertz range, um, which when you slow them down and rhythm, they sound bird whistles. They are usually made in kind of appetitive sense, so anticipation of reward or anticipation of play a, a play opportunity with another rat, things like that. And then they also make an alarm call type which is a lower frequency and it's not, it's flat and it's much longer. So, so you can kind of, it's, it's very cool because you can kind of start to understand what's the motivational state of this rat in front of you by the vocalizations that it's wow. making. Neat. And, and so what, yeah. what have you been, what have you been finding then? Ah, so, so my, in my master's dissertation, I looked at tickle response in the rat model of Fragile X and um, I really I didn't find much difference, actually no difference uh, that I could detect between there. So what I measured was how many calls they made and the frequency that the calls were at, so whether they were the 50s or 22s, basically. And I also looked at the frequency modulation. So happier calls are usually associated with more change in frequency over time, frequency modulation. Whereas the 22 kilohertz calls are flat and they can also make 50 kilohertz calls that are flat. So I looked at the, the ratio basically of 
frequency modulated to flat calls in response to tickling. And then also how many times they let me sort of tickle them because to tickle a rat, you need to pin them down on their back and tickle their belly. <laughs> you don't need to, but that is one method. And that's the method that I was using. But they have to be sort of cooperative in this interaction because it, it's, it's an interaction and which makes it a bit hard to standardize. <laughs> but basically, if a, if a rat doesn't want to be tickled, um, in, the, in the approach I was using, they could block me from, well, firstly, they can just avoid my hand. Yes. But then also, um, if they don't want to be pinned, and I have them in front of my hand, they I, if I start to try to turn them over, they can make their tail rigid and just block the motion. So I wasn't able to ever force a rat to, to be pinned. <laughs> so if they didn't want to participate, they didn't participate. So then I was also able to use um, the number of times that they were pinned and tickled as sort of an indicator of how willing they were to participate. And I didn't find any difference uh, in that either. So in my PhD, I went on to two other of a neurodevelopmental disorder, SYNGAP1 and CDKL5 deficiency disorder, which are both um, in the same realm of sort of causing um, intellectual disability, childhood epilepsies and um, autism. So I did find some differences there, but it was hard to interpret because there also might be some differences in how well these rats are able to habituate to a new environment. And as you know, fear and anxiety yes. are sort of <laughs> antithesis to a playful mood. Right. Um, and, and yeah, and that is actually measurable in rats as well. So if they're under a really bright light, they, they will not respond or up on a platform, they will not respond to tickle. Whereas if they're just in, you know, low light, their normal tickle arena, they'll respond. So um, I couldn't really interpret those results very easily because it would be tempting to say, ah, yes, we've found that these <laughs> rat models are have a social deficit. They don't like to be tickled. But I'm not, I'm not convinced. I wasn't convinced that that was the only explanation. So we said, well, uh, maybe we just need to look at their play behavior between themselves and see what are they doing. And because play deprivation in rats um, shares a lot of consequences, I guess, the outcome of that shares a lot of features with sort of ASD phenotypes. So like just difficulty with social interactions, more sort of inappropriate response to social stimuli, impulsivity, hyperactivity. Uh, so I thought that was kind of intriguing. And I thought, well, maybe they're not playing. And, and therefore, the rat models, I mean, and right. therefore, they're not developing these sort of kind of normal socio-emotional skills. So to address the, the idea that maybe they're also not habituating as well um, to being handled and to a novel arena, because the, the kind of traditional way of looking at rat play is to take them out of their home cage and put them into an arena together and watch or videotape the interaction for some amount of time. And it doesn't usually have to be long because they're likely to play. And if you socially isolate rats for a brief time and you put them back together, they're even more likely to play. But because, because of the tickle results, we weren't sure if I didn't want to do that and have another result that was sort of 
thrown into question by, well, yes, they're not playing, but is it because they haven't gotten comfortable in this arena? <laughs> right. right. So, right. yeah. So that right. led me to kind of uh, develop a paradigm where the rats live in a really spatially complex and enriched environment, actually. So our lab has developed a thing that it allows rats to be to live in a laboratory, but in a in a very highly enriched setting, and we can monitor their behavior all the time. So it can either be used for experimental observation, or it can just be used as housing, and those rats can be used for other things. But they're living in a more enriched environment, so um, an improvement on welfare and and possibly even an improvement on the results of studies. Because I think what we really study a lot of times. <laughs> when we use rats who are housed conventionally in a lab is sort of the life of a prisoner. So we're not, we're not necessarily modeling, you know, the broader population in a lot of ways. So these rats um, for the play, they lived in a spatially complex environment, but I just housed them as pairs to make it possible for me to observe um, just one dyad over time. Okay. And I conditioned them <laughs> um, to basically to, to allow me to isolate them without handling them. I conditioned them to move to either end of the, um, the housing. And I was able to slide uh, sliding doors in between the modules. And so then for 24 hours, they would be isolated. And then um, I could remove the panels and then they would be reunited and but still in their home environment and that allowed me to be able to record the play observe whether they had this rebound effect which was I kind of thought they wouldn't have the rebound effect where they kind of increased their play after isolation but they did but they did, <laughs> um, <Huh>. they, did. <laughs> they just they actually they played for the same amount of time so I observed them for the first two hours after the lights went off and yeah, they, they basically, the models, they played for the same amount of time in that two hours, but their play was more fragmented. So I was scoring play bouts. So just a series of playful behaviors. And then whenever it was interrupted for more than one second, then I would stop it and start a new play bout. And that happened more often for the models than for the wild types. So yeah, that's what I found out. Which so, allows you to draw what conclusions? <laughs> so if any if, yeah well that's just the thing well the first conclusion is that I was right to be suspicious of the tickle results because in this particular model um, it looked like both the wild types and the knockouts weren't as responsive to tickle as others had been um, but actually they the, they play at similar levels to each other now I haven't I haven't compared them to other models yet, so I don't know how they compare. But um, so that was the first thing that was kind of interesting. So you know, tickle response can't necessarily be said to represent social responsiveness or their their playfulness with each other necessarily in the rat models. I think that mainly if we can see a difference in play behavior, or really in any spontaneous social behavior in a paradigm like this, what it gives us is a way to ask the rats, like, how has this affected you, but in a way that's very non-invasive. Okay. So I think that's one of the strengths of looking at play behavior. And the other one is that it's, it might, 
if we could find out if if you could if you could find a deficit in the play or a difference in the play and then link it to a later phenotype and then you could find out what what that particular part of play was adding to their experience maybe you could add that in for them without them having to be able to play with a partner and and sort of help that developmental trajectory be more adaptive does that does that make sense <laughs> yeah which which then ties us into horses because i'm sure many people are listening to this or thinking wait a minute i thought you said this was a podcast about horses <laughs> why are you talking about yes rats? that's actually the the part that i think is the most interesting because i think that there are so many parallels between what we the conditions that we set up in clicker training and play and i think sometimes what we end up doing is or we could end up doing is is yeah giving giving our horses our learners some experiences that might prepare them to be more adaptable in the future so i i definitely want to go down that rabbit hole but before we go down that rabbit hole i want you to repeat something that you said earlier because i think it's important so you talked about when you have an individual that has play deficits, mm. what that does developmentally. Yes, in rats. In rats, <laughs> yes. And yes, and in humans, I mean, there's, there's not experimental evidence, of course, in humans, but there is evidence that play is very supportive of like a resilience, stress resilience, and the ability to cope with adverse conditions and so forth. And in rats, so it's, it's hard to disentangle this from just social isolation in rats, but it but you can do it by basically having rats be allowed to interact with each other kind of through a barrier, for example, okay. or having a rat, giving a rat a, play, uh, a cage mate who's not particularly playful, like an adult or a rat who's who's been drugged, for example. So they're not completely deprived of social interaction, but of specifically of the experience of play. So play in rats is really play fighting and they kind of do a lot of wrestling. It's very physical. And they also do a lot of role reversals. And that seems to be important in development. So so rats who have been deprived of play are there's they can be hyperactive as adults. They can be hyper responsive to social stimuli. So they could uh, respond to an unknown intruder um, more aggressively than a rat who's had this social play experience. They also seem to not be as able to adjust their behavior based on who they're, they're interacting with. So if they're in a situation where um, there's a more dominant resident, for example, a resident male, and they're put into the situation where they're an intruder, they're not as able to change their behavior to reduce the amount of aggression that they receive. So a rat who's had play experience uh, might freeze, for example, um, or could use objects in the environment to, to put themselves in a better position. Whereas the rats who didn't have play experience, they didn't seem to modify their behavior in that way in the presence of an aggressor. So they just they were more likely to attract um, aggression because they didn't, maybe they didn't give off the right social signals or they made themselves an easier target, something like that. 
for me, what's running through my mind is one of the suggestions that is always made when you are breeding, thinking of breeding a horse, is that you want the foal to grow up with other foals. That the that being able to to be in an age cohort where they can play together mm. is really important for the social development of horses. And of course, for many of our horses, you, know, you have your horse at home, you have your mare at home, and you want to breed it, so you do. But that foal is growing up maybe in a herd, but it's a herd that's made up of adult horses. And so I, listening to you, I just wonder, what is the social impact? What uh, I, I wonder if we went into the internet and looked for studies, has this been studied in any consistent way of what is the impact on raising horses without other young horses to grow up with? And we both have Icelandics, and I think about you know, the Icelandics, my two Icelandics came from Iceland, where they would have grown up in a large social herd with other foals to play with. And they would have had what is, for horses, a very normal living in a herd, living out kind of upbringing. And they are so resilient and so socially capable. And I think about some of the other horses I know who grew up more as singles, and they don't have that flexibility and resiliency. Yeah, I also wonder about having just different types of social interactions with different types of individuals as well. So in rats, and I think this is probably true for most social species who play, they they can they they change their behavior based on who they're playing with. And I think that that probably is a really important learning experience and it gives them flexibility so they can have multiple behavioral strategies and that that makes them able to negotiate a lot of different kinds of uh, interactions so maybe for horses as well not just having not just growing up with 10 other foals but a mix maybe is probably maybe important as well because you might learn I can do this with my buddy but I can't do this to mom or I can't do this to this horse (laughs) it won't be tolerated but being able to sort of switch back and forth between contexts where this kind of behavior is fine and then in this context, this is what you need to do. I think feel like that must be important. It's, that's so interesting that you say that because our two Icelandics used to play mock stallion games. I mean, they just would look so dramatic, rearing up and biting at each other's necks. And you think, oh, they're killing each other. And they scream, and, you know, the whole nine yards until they learn that if, I, if they screamed, then I would interrupt them. And so then they learned to play silently, which I always thought was really interesting. And, and they would always come in without a mark on them. So even though it looked like they were biting each other's necks, there was never a mark on them. They were all pulled punches. I never saw them play stallion games with any of the other horses. Oh, wow. It was only the two Icelandics who played those games together, never with the others. So, which is just, it's just really interesting, interesting based on what you were just saying. Yeah, well, I don't, yeah, and it also, I think it does, for the rats, it seems to play an important role in sort of learning about how to coordinate your body with 
another body. So yes. rats who have not had this experience with play, they're not as good at keeping a food away from another rat. So rats carry food a lot. And so they have the chance to rob each other. And so food stealing and food sort of protecting your food, I guess are probably important. And so, yeah, rats who haven't had this experience are not so good at keeping it away. And I think it's probably because they don't learn about keeping body targets away from each other. And it, maybe it doesn't matter so much what the body target is. So rats have a specific body target for play, but I think horses must as well. I mean, they do the neck thing or, I mean, they change their body targets, I suppose. Yeah. I, and I guess if you don't learn how to coordinate your body, you're much more likely to get hurt, even if you're just trying to play because you don't get out of the way fast enough or, or you yeah. can't pull your punch because you miscalculate it. Yes. And you, you don't know how to zig when uh, you should be zigging. And instead you zag and you run into somebody. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and it's certainly... interesting how nature, you know, is so clever because I don't know of any species where the youngsters don't play. And play is preparation for life. Yes. Yes. I mean, have you ever seen... You know, usually there is play when a living being is young. Certainly in mammals and birds. Some incidences of play have been recorded in turtles and fish. Mm. But I think also it seems that play exists on sort of a spectrum. And so sometimes mm. we might look at something and it doesn't look like play, but maybe it's just like on the really far end of the spectrum that we wouldn't recognize it yeah mm -hmm. but certainly for the animals that we live with and that we work with and for ourselves play is I would say is incredibly important and that training in a playful uh, mindset is um, really helps helps us to be more creative it helps to insulate us from the emotions that are not productive in training, meaning getting angry, getting blameful. You know, this, this horse just isn't doing what I'm asking to do. And I'm really finding it difficult not to look around for something to hit him with. Uh, when you're playing, when you're playful, it's, I think, much easier to be flexible, to be relaxed, to breathe, to be non-threatening to find the creative solutions, to be more interactive socially. I, have, I think about some of the people I watch training, and even though they're using clicker training, they're getting too serious. Mm. And they're not, because they're, they're so serious, the, the social interactions with their horse are really diminished. And the horse becomes more I don't want really like using the word, but more of an automaton. I'm doing just what the cue told me to do, but I'm I'm not putting out, even though it's for goodies, even though you're clicking and treating me. But as soon as you relax and start to laugh and uh, become more playful, then all of a sudden you see the horse going, oh, yes, of course, of course I, I can offer more solutions and and I can interact with you more and I can uh, become more involved in the game. 
I think being playful is really an important component of being a good trainer. And when you're young, it seems so natural, but as an adult, it looks more like something we need to cultivate. Yeah, that you have to put on, as it were, or or practice because mm. we've we've lost the skill of it. And mm. that lovely interview that we did a few episodes back with uh, with Krista Colbert, and she talked about working with children and how how easy the 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 cues seem were such a natural thing for the horse, you know, or, or for the children, uh, you know. If I if I am in this posture, uh, that's my cue that I'm a wizard, and and that cues you to become <laughs> a dragon, and and that kind of playful exchange is is what children do, and then we get all stuffy and oh, we can't do that. We have to be really formal, and yet the horses thrive on the play behavior, on our being playful. And so do we. And so, and do so we. I don't know if, uh, you know, as a neuroscientist, if there's any, but if there's any data to this, but certainly we feel that being playful keeps us young. Yes. I think there was a quote, uh, I can't remember, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was now, but there was someone who was researching play like very early, a long time ago. And he thought his quote was something along the lines of um, animals are young because they play or something like this, something along those lines, yeah. But I think it's also, maybe it helps us to, to keep our minds flexible, like what you were saying. I think I've been thinking about how um, a lot of learning um, seems to involve the, the making of mental models and then the testing of those models. So when, you're, when your model is, when you make a model and then so you make a prediction and then, and then you find out that your prediction was wrong, you can update your model. And it seems like play is a really good opportunity for that. But I think in clicker training, a lot of time what we're doing is we're trying to help our learner build a model of what we're asking. So and what we do is we kind of seem to use, we get, so a loop, we, when we have a clean loop, then we know that our learner is going to predict that the next time I do this, this is what's going to happen. And I think what we do in clicker training might be that part of it is that we're capitalizing on this prediction error. So we build this pattern and then when the learner does the pattern and they are predicting that that's going to result in a click and it doesn't, then that they become much more alert to, oh, what, what just changed because there was a prediction and then there was an error in the prediction. So I think that might be a, a maybe something where the loops are sort of coming in and how patterns are so powerful. If you have grown up in a safe environment in which you've had a lot of play interactions, then it's safe to encounter, to have a prediction that doesn't work out and you adjust your model. If you've grown up in a more deprived environment in which it's correction-based, and if you make a mistake, there are really adversive consequences, then that, those are two totally different experiences and that you're bringing that you're bringing into the training and uh, the training environment 
you know, what happens when a mistake is made. And for some horses, when a mistake is made, you see them become almost paralyzed. Or they, they freeze up. They can't, they can't cope emotionally because they are expecting horrible things to happen. And with other horses, they just keep sort of bouncing along perfectly happily. <laughs> You've got a lot more leeway with those horses. You know, you can make more mistakes, and mistakes are just water off a duck's back. So in terms of your research and, and then your experience with your two horses, who are very different individuals, one from the other, yes. uh, what kinds of uh, parallels or what... What, what do you think about in terms of drawing on your the research to inform what you're seeing in the horses? It's hard because my research is really focused on the developmental aspect. And what I'm seeing in the horses is adult play. I don't know how, to what extent it has the same power or if it's a more of a social bonding Thing, but in the training, for sure, I try to bring in a, a playful aspect. And also, I guess, knowing that anxiety basically kills playfulness. So, <laughs> so whenever, whenever I know that my horses are, because Sputnik can be quite anxious. And I think that makes it hard for him Actually, they both had their moments of anxiety. I think that makes it hard for us to get into a playful mood. I mean, sometimes we can initiate a playful mood from anxiety by just doing something that's familiar and getting to a relaxed state, and then it can become more playful. But yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I, but I, I would like to be more intentional about like adding sort of playful elements to the training. But so far, all I've managed is just like a playful mood, <laughs> playful intentions, <laughs> um, which is kind of like you said, like just responding to some things like by laughing or or going with the flow and taking suggestions. Like if they offer me a leg lift or they offer me a target or whatever, instead of going like, no, I had a plan. I'll be like, okay, let's see where this goes, which sometimes ends up a lot more fun. But I think the most playful thing that we've probably done, and maybe just because it's really different, is with balance pads. And I actually think that's kind of interesting because I think there's a lot of like testing of balance that happens like physically in play as well, where you get the opportunity to like intentionally put yourself off balance and see like how it feels or how you can catch yourself or whatever. And Sputnik really loves the balance pads, which at first he didn't know what to think of them. And we started using them because he has stifle issues and they thought they would be good for helping stabilization. But because I didn't go into using the balance pads with any specific goal, except I want you to stand on here for like an increasing amount of time <laughs> and we can do whatever while you're standing on here. Those, those sessions have become like really led by him so I just bring the balance pads out and I put them down and then he likes to just see how the different ways he can put his feet on them he likes to stand on both at once he likes to put his two feet on one at once 
and then yesterday we we played around with like stacking a platform with a balance pad on top of it and he really liked that idea <laughs> so I don't know I guess yeah I think it's I think it's a, really a, about role reversals and letting your partner have a chance to lead the fun for a little while and going with it and then I don't know if it was in your podcast with Krista or when you just you just referenced like improv improv comedy and how there's this yes. like yes and kind of feeling yeah <laughs> I, I very very much resonated with me because that seems to be really key in play. That's how we keep things playful is like, yes, we'll go with your suggestion. And as soon as we start blocking the suggestions, then I think we lose a lot of the play. So I think that's really important. That's a, a, a really important piece to get to because while you've been talking, I've been thinking that one of the challenges when you talk about play is to ask, well, what is play? Yeah. And <laughs> you know, what defines what defines play? What defines being playful and with humans we get very uh, um, task oriented in describing play well play is when you you know you get out of a board game at night and you play on the board game or you get out of it that dates me you get or you get out the video game which is probably more likely or you play softball or you know you and but is that really play you know if you're playing softball uh, in a league with all of its rules and et cetera, et cetera, are you still being playful? Mm. And we certainly know a lot of bad losers yes, to, yes. who are not very <laughs> playful at the end of the game if they didn't win. Yes. It's a sort of lightness for sure. Yeah, and that gets to uh, the book called Play mm. by Stuart Brown. I think I've got the name right. And he was... He, so, you know, play is it's really hard to define mm. but you you can describe characteristics that play has and play mm -hmm. is one of those things that you know it when you see it yeah um, and so some of the characteristics that I remember that he listed was you lose all track of time mm. and I think oh well that you know yes I because I always think of most of what I do is I think of it I'm just playing I'm uh, it's not work, it's play. And and I can start out first thing in the morning and suddenly it's four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And I think, oh my goodness, how did, where did the, where did the day go? Uh, and certainly when I'm uh, teaching that happens and uh, we just think, oh, you know, how did we just, how are we losing the light already? We just got, we just had breakfast. How can it be the other end of the day? So you lose track of time. And that, that was one of the uh, characteristics that I recall. And, but you have to be careful about the rules because that can very quickly shift you out of play. And so I think when we are talking about being playful in training, the, 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 the role reversal that you talk about, Raven, is probably a really important piece that in a lot of the training, we're definitely leading the dance. We're going to go do this. I'm going to ask you to, to walk forward and then to turn around this cone and then to go back to the mat. But what you're describing is, well, here's an object. Here are the balance pads. What do you, what do you want to do? What are you going to do with them? Oh, what a good idea. Let me 
click and reinforce that? And what else would you like to do with it? And I think that's a really important part of the training. And when we don't allow that kind of opportunity in our training, that not only is our training impoverished in some way or diminished in some way, but so also is our relationship. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's really interesting that, um, to hear from a human perspective the definitions of play because you can base them more on self-report. Like, how do you feel when you're playing? Whereas when we're trying to define play in animals, we just have to go by what it looks like externally, which is which is different, but maybe maybe in some cases can feel the same. But yeah, that's um, the role reversal. And also I think that it's really important that that there's variability, but that the variability is coming from sort of a predefined set. So you kind of know the scope of what you might get, but you don't know exactly what you'll get. So because that frees you up to try something and then your partner can respond with a lot of different variations, but not a variation that's sort of like outside of the game for like that would cause an injury or make it not play anymore. So like a lot of play behaviors follows like similar behavior patterns over and over. Like you can watch play three days in a row in the horses or the rats or whatever and the cats. And you see that there's like the same elements sort of being recycled. And I think that's, a, I think it's really important that like you can feel safe in trying new things because out of this set of possibilities, you're going to get one, but usually you're not going to get one outside of those possibilities. I think that that might be important. That sounds important because certainly when we're working with horses, when we're playing with horses, we, we humans really cannot play with horses unless we're very experienced horse people. We can't play, we can't use horse play behaviors uh, between a horse and a human. The two Icelandics rearing up and crashing into one another, they can walk away with, from that encounter without a mark on them and without any bruises. But a human really could not safely play in that way with a horse. You'd get the, the risk of, of injury would just be too great. So you have to find other types of behaviors that you treat in a playful way, but are not necessarily natural play behaviors for either species. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe that's, yeah, but maybe it's not the actual behavior that's important anyway. Maybe it's just this the context where yes. there's these freedoms and the role reversals and you can maybe we're like hijacking that a little bit and and just taking that that game and changing it so that we can be involved safely which is exactly the point isn't it that mm. uh, one of the things that we want to look for in the clicker training are opportunities to create behaviors that are safe between a horse and a human but that hijack, that's a great word, the <laughs> playful context um, uh, state of being. Yeah. Like the, the horses that love to retrieve. And they just, they, they are just such 
brilliant retrievers. And they will sometimes, they will often out-retrieve dogs, which is pretty astounding. And clearly, I would say clearly for them, it is a play behavior. It's a play interaction. Yeah. Yes, Gordon Berghart wrote a book, The Genesis of Animal Play. He suggests five criteria that we can use to recognize play in a in diverse range of species, because that's one of the difficulties is in sort of identifying and operationalizing. So what do we say is play? Um, but one of them is that the behavior does not appear to be immediately functional or fulfill survival needs. Yep. So that sort of gets that. The, the reason I brought it up is because retrieving made me think of that with horses because yeah. I, I, I don't know. I can't think of anything like less related to survival for a horse than retrieving something. <laughs> I can't well, imagine. If you, if, you taught, if you taught the retrieving though with, you know, treats and carrots, then because this makes me think of the intrinsic and extrinsic um, discussion mm. we had not long ago where it feels to me that play should have this intrinsic uh, quality to it where it's its own, it's rewarding on its own. With any, with, within any species though, how are they learning any of the behaviors that are in repertoire for play? Mm. So that, you know, they will probably start out with uh, extrinsic reinforcers, mm. but it, in a natural setting, when I think of a herd of horses living out, that Raymond is right, that you don't see horses going out and retrieving objects right. uh, and that that enhances their survival in any way. That's right. No, but we can certainly teach retrieving to horses. And for some peculiar reason, they seem to really like to retrieve. So what were the four other criteria? course I'm going to make you wait until next time to learn what the other four criteria that can be used to recognize play are. When we began the conversation with Raven, I thought we were going to head down a very different rabbit hole, but following a playful way of being, we ended up talking about play. I do think play is an important part of the training. Over a 12-month period in 2016, I published a book in my blog, the clickercenterblog.com. I think of the book as a gift from my horses, so I chose to put it in my blog rather than going down a more traditional publishing route. It's called Joyful Horses. That's joyful spelled with two L's to emphasize horses that are full of joy. And play full is written in the same way, so it is training that is filled with play. If you want to read the book, visit my blog at theclickercenterblog.com. At the top, you'll see a tab that will take you directly to Joyful Horses. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Raven. In the meantime, train well, be full of play, and have fun with your horses. Music